Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 to 19. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceive in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer, and pleased for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servant, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, Yet we have not entreated the favour of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned. 
we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your, ear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is God's word. Thanks, Angeline, for reading God's Word for us this morning. When you reach my age, you need to uh, change glasses when you read books. So, Right, good morning, beloved in Christ. You know, I'm really happy to see uh, more of us gathered in person here this morning to worship God as a church together. And those, for those of us who are viewing in online, welcome as well. Today, we will, I will cover the second of our fourth message, fourth message on prayer. And just why, why do we want to talk about prayer? We talk about prayer because when we pray, praying expresses our dependence on our faithful, good and mighty God. You know, Eugene started us last week with the first message on prayer. He prefaced his message by talking about the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew 6 and Luke 11 and how Jesus' teaching about prayer should frame our prayers. And from the Lord's Prayer, we learn that there are four elements to prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving and supplication, giving us the acronym A-C-T-S. And today, we'll look at C, for confession. You know, and, and as we look at God's word this morning for instruction on prayer, it's appropriate that we start with prayer. So let us pray. Father God, you are our, uh, our great God of steadfast love and mercy. We love you and praise you. We are frail beings and we need your help. We ask that your Holy Spirit open our eyes and tutor our hearts in the ways of prayer. May we grow to be a praying people, humble and dependent on your abundant grace and mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I've uh, watched some uh, talk shows, uh, or even uh, seen podcasts where guests speak openly about their failures and weaknesses. And in the name of service to authenticity, they confess their momentary lapses. 
And they are celebrated for being open, true to themselves. My friends, I put it to you. Is this what the Bible means by confession? Closer to home, we have observed believers giving passing, half-hearted admission to their failures and wrongs. And I say this not as a means of condemnation or pointing out, but I have sometimes done it myself. You know, when we are asked to share our CG, we say a cursory, oh, I have not been regularly spending time with God in my devotions, so pray for me. We say this rather than a mission that we have let other priorities crowd out our God, crowd God. We have let other things be our treasure that at our heart we do not desire God. So in service to our pride or to hide our sin shame, we give lip service to confession. So what is biblical confession? How can we practice confession in ways that please and honour God? We will look, be looking at Daniel's prayer today in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1 to 19. It's a long passage. But from this passage of Scripture, we will see a model prayer of confession. But before we start, who was Daniel? Daniel was a Jew who lived far from his homeland about 600 years before Christ. Daniel first served under the Babylonian king uh, Nebuchadnezzar and then under the Persian king Cyrus. As with other prophets such as Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Daniel lived and wrote amid the events associated with the exile of Judah to Babylon in the 6th century BC. It was a tumultuous time for God's people. And God, through Daniel, wrote to encourage the Israelites in exile in Babylon. We see that Daniel writes out his prayer in Daniel 9, 1-19. And he invites us to consider it as an instruction piece for our own practice of prayer. So, so how do we confess our sins in our prayers? The outline for today's message is as follow on the screen in front of you. There are three sections. And Daniel focuses on our great God of steadfast love and mercy in his prayer. He pleads mercy from a God of steadfast love and faithfulness confessing both his and Israel's sin and pleading God, pleading to God to turn from his anger. Alexander Graham Bell was credited for inventing and patenting the first telephone. He was quoted as saying, preparation is the key to success. He emphasised the importance of preparation. Preparation for prayer is also essential. So what should precede our prayers? Daniel 9, 1-3. Daniel 9, 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Midi, who was made king of the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass, before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. We see here that Daniel dates the occasion of his prayer, verse 1. And Daniel's date is very significant. 
is the first year of Darius, son of Ahasuerus. What this means is that there is now a regime change that Babylon has fallen and Persia has taken over. So you look at the map, this extent of the Persian kingdom in Daniel's time. So what Daniel was doing is Daniel was doing a Bible study, we see that in verse 2, from the scroll of Jeremiah. And he observed how his historical circumstances, the circumstances that he is experiencing, connects with the prophetic predictions and assurance of Jeremiah. So if you turn to Jeremiah 25, 11, it reads, This whole land, referring to the kingdom of Judah, shall become a ruin and a waste, and this nation shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So Jeremiah predicted that Jerusalem would be destroyed, that Judah's people, the Israelites, would be exiled to Babylon for 70 years. And this is due to their unfaithfulness to the covenant that they had made with God. Now a covenant is a promise, it's a stunning blend of love and responsibility. At Mount Sinai, after God rescued Israel out of Egypt, God and Israel cut or committed to a covenant. God will be their God and Israel will be God's people. Israel was then to live according to the promises and instructions of the covenant and associated consequences for breaking the covenant. There's a series of curse and consequences, but the end result is that the nation of Israel, for forsaking their covenant, they were put into exile, as we see in Jeremiah 25, 11. But exile was not the last word for Israel. Because the very next verse in Jeremiah 25, 12, uh, Jeremiah tells us, Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans or Babylon for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So God, through Jeremiah, Jeremiah was predicting that after 70 years of exiles for God's people, God will intervene and judge the Babylonian. And Daniel lived to see this. The Persians conquered the Babylonians and there was a change in those in power. This was God's judgment on Babylon as predicted by Jeremiah. But while there's judgment on Babylon, there is salvation promise for Israel. Because reading further down the book in Jeremiah 29, verse 10 to 14, there Jeremiah encourages God's people that at the end of 70 years, Israel will begin to call out to God and God will hear them. And God's word to His people in exile was in summary, when the 70 years granted to Babylon are over, I will intervene on your behalf and fulfill my promise by bringing you back to this place, meaning back to the promised land. So after 70 years, God will intervene to bring the Israelites in exile back to the promised land. So in this Bible study, Daniel notes that 70 years was given for both Babylon's domination and Jerusalem's desolation. We see this in verse 2. And Daniel was stirred to prayer by Jeremiah's prophecies. Because if Babylon's rule is at the end, 
then Jerusalem's restoration is about to begin. And it is time to start crying out to God. And we see Daniel's response. Daniel's response was, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Daniel begged for Jerusalem's restoration. What we see here is something quite simple. The faithful Lord's promises drive His servant to prayer. No, it's as if God's promises are a solid, sturdy wall and our prayers are meant to be nailed to and get stuck to the wall. Now, God's promises and His Word prepare us to pray. And this, is what, and, and this is what Daniel did. And note what Daniel did next. He turned from himself and gave attention to God. He fasted and wore sackcloth and ashes. Now, a sign in his days that he was truly repentant before God and serious about praying and crying out to God. And then Daniel got down to praying, seeking God by prayer and pleas for mercy. So my friends, we prepare to pray by remembering God's promises in His Word and coming before God with a heart posture of repentance. Now, in some quarters of Christianity, there, there's a tendency you know, to separate prayer from God's Word. You know, we just do our Bible study, then after that we go into pray, prayer and do whatever we want to do in our prayer. Now, this temptation just to do our Bible study, get it over with, and then get to our prayers. And then the sad thing is that our prayers are then seldom informed by the Bible. The promises of God revealed in the Word of God should inform and motivate our prayers. If not, our prayers will, re- will degenerate into kind of a give me prayers. I'm sure you have heard this, right? Sometimes our prayer just comprises of God, give me this, give me that, give me this and that. You know, we, de- we degenerate into give me prayers. Don't get me wrong. Any prayer is better than not approaching God at all. But still, over time, our prayer should mature to our praying according to God's will. As, as the, the Apostle John exhorts us to in 1 John 5, 14-15. And God's will is most clearly revealed in His Word. So what does this look like? What does praying according to God's will as revealed in His Word look like? It means that we not only pray for our struggling brother and sister that the trouble and suffering will be removed. Do pray that. I think it's a good prayer. But we also pray that in the midst of the suffering and trouble that our brother and sister will know the depth and height of God's love for them and to grow in Christ-like maturity in the midst of the trouble and suffering. So in essence, we pray Ephesians 3 and Colossians 1.28 for our brother and sister. It means that even as we pray for relief from the disasters that affect various, various nations, we pray for the church weakness and pray that Christ will be proclaimed. And we pray according to Paul's exaltation in 1 Corinthians 1.23. And that's what our brother John did just now. We prayed for the relief of floods in Malaysia and the various other countries but we pray also for the church weakness and for the gospel to be proclaimed. So we pray according to God's revealed will in His Scripture. We pray that God will reveal His character and promises to us in His Word 
so that we will continue to be rooted and established in His promises. You know, my friends, don't you delight in asking that God will show Himself to us in His character and promises so that we will be driven to prayer? So not only do we pray, we pray that God will motivate us and drive us to prayer by showing and revealing to us His promises. We pray the promises of God. And one practical way to do so, as uh, modelled by some of the older members in the church, is simply to pray the Psalms. You know, some of our member, church members have made it a practice to do so. Now, Uncle Tony prayed the Psalms in closing our watch night service. And Kim Ming, Uncle Kim Ming, discipled many others in the church by teaching us how to pray by simply praying through the Psalms. I remember spending time with him as a young Christian to pray through Psalm 16. And I think he has a self-published booklet on praying the Psalms, which I've been told he still has a number of copies, and he will be really glad to give it out if you approach him. So my friends, let Scripture drive your prayer. It is Daniel's way of praying. You know, we have that one friend, don't we? When we meet, they spend most of the time talking about themselves. Hey, I know you're thinking of that person in your head. because we have that one friend. You know? We meet, and then they spend 30 minutes talking about ourselves. Then we manage to get in like two sentences, and then they spend the remaining 20 minutes still talking about themselves. How do we prevent that from happening to us as we talk to God in prayer? How do we guard ourselves against merely talking about ourselves in our prayer and then ending up as an exercise in navel-gazing in our prayers? Daniel 9, 4-14 will help us here. So after setting the stage and preparing to pray in the first three verses, Daniel actually begins his prayer, his prayer of confession in verse 4. And let's just look at verse 4 as we start off this section. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. We see that God is addressed in the prayer in verse 4. And the address comes with a little bit of adoration. So even though the main burden of the prayer by Daniel is confession of sin and petition, the adoration of our faithful God is not missing. So it, it, it strengthens what uh, Eugene spoke about uh, last week. You know, sometimes uh, prayers, uh, people who pray in the Bible, they, yeah, they're under such pressure, they immediately rush to their burdens in their prayers. But often, there's an explicit address to God, however brief. For example, the Lord's Prayer, Our Father in Heaven. Or, or it can be a rather extended address, as we see in the prayers by Daniel, in uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 to 22. Such an address to God is perfectly right. We should first stop and consider who it is that we are speaking to. And not only that, if you look at Daniel's prayer as we go through the next uh, 10 or 11 verses of his confession, Daniel's prayer echoes with the Old Testament, especially with connections to God's covenant, in Exodus 26, especially in Deuteronomy 7, 9, and 21. And, and Daniel's uh, prayer, the things he talks about, connects to the following books in the Old Testament 
as well. So if you want to, you turn to Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, as well as 9, chapter 9. You, you see that they all uh, gather around the same themes which are repeated by people who pray in the Old Testaments. Specifically, Deuteronomy 7 comprise both elements of Daniel's ascription in verse 4. So this is what uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9 says. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Sound very familiar to what Daniel is praying, right? So, so Daniel is affirming that this God we approach is both fearful and faithful. This God keeps covenant. He is both good, great and good. Both ones who makes us tremble and ones who keep us secure. Daniel here teaches us how to adore and rejoice over God. Even to do so here, briefly but genuinely. And this is something that we can do in our prayers, despite our circumstances or feelings. Simply because God is who He is. And this does not change despite the mess or trouble that I may be in. My friends, remember this. Whatever circumstances you may be in, I'm speaking directly to those who are struggling, our circumstances do not determine our relationship with God. It does not change our relationship with God. So rejoice in this. Praise God for this. We also see that this recalling of God's character and mighty works, in particular the great Exodus rescue, the great redemptive event in the Old Testament, this is also seen in our call to worship today in Psalm 106, verses 6 to 8. All this to show that Daniel is simply following in the model of prayers as given by the prayer book of Israel, the Psalms. Daniel 9, 5 and following continues Daniel's confession. You know, as, as you listen, as you read through this, note that this prayer has this tone of sadness. Daniel is really sorrowful because it is a prayer of confession. And Daniel is awash in Israel's sin. Okay. What are the main elements of Daniel's prayer of confession? We'll be doing a walkthrough here of this section of prayer. And this will be the best way for us to get just a, a handle on Daniel's main concerns. Firstly, we see that Daniel agrees with God's assessment of the guilt of Israel. So Daniel starts, you notice that Daniel in his pray, prayer agrees with God's assessment of the guilt of Israel. You know, he begins by talking about gross guilt in verses 5 to 6. He talks about the guilt apparent in Israel's uh, doing. He talks about how they have sinned. Uh, not only in this verse, uh, verses 5 and 6, but also verse 8, 11 and 15, how they have done and acted wickedly in verse 5, how they are defiant and rebelled also in verse 5, how they have defected away from God by turning away from God's commandments and rules also in verse 5, and how they are deaf. You know? uh, he talks about how they, they, Israel has not listened in verse 10, 11 and 14, how they have not listened to God's servant, not listened to God's prophets. Uh, we see here how Daniel agrees with God's assessment of Israel's sin. Secondly, Daniel grieves and mourns over sin. 
Daniel mourns the obvious consequences of such compounded sin and guilt in verses 7 to 8. Talks especially about the open shame of these homeless exiles whom God has banished from the promised land. And so that their only hope is God's abundant mercy. Thirdly, Daniel recalls God's character, especially God's mercy. You know, in verse 7, Daniel has uh, said, To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But now in verse 9, he says, To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. Mercy and forgiveness in this verse are actually plurals. So they refer to multiple repeated acts of compassion and forgiveness. In short, Daniel is referring to God as being rich in mercy. And God must be so if guilty people like us are to have any hope. For we have rebelled against Him. However, we see that Daniel will simply not allow mental camping on God's warm mercy. But Daniel also pushes us to remember God's faithful anger. We see this in verses 11 to 13. God is faithful to judge according to His righteousness. Israel, as Daniel confesses, has stepped over God's law. So the curse and oath, as written in the law of Moses, has been poured out on the nation of Israel. God has put into effect His words and His promises of judgment, which He has spoken out against Israel and their rulers. Verse 12. And all this calamity has now come upon the nation of Israel. Verse 13. And this curse and oath that Daniel refers to refers to the covenantal curses of Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. These covenantal curses are where God spelled out in often explicit and frightening details the multiple disaster that God will inflict upon His people if they have turned away from God. So Daniel's point is this, is that God is not only faithful to save, God has been faithful to His righteousness in His anger. God is just, and He has inflicted upon unfaithful Israel precisely what He said He would do. And my friends, sometimes we can forget this. We sing, great is your faithfulness, and forget that there is a side to that faithfulness, that God's faithfulness to His righteousness means that God is faithful to judge sin. All of which brings us to the last portion where we see a significant omission of God's people. All this disaster has come upon God's people. But they have not pleaded for the favour of the Lord their God. They have not turned from their equities and have not paid attention to God's truth. Daniel seems to be saying that even though Israel has gone through judgment and experienced God's covenantal curses, yet the people remain unchanged, unbroken, unrepentant. God has superintended the disaster and brought it upon the nation of Israel as God's judgment against their sin and unfaithfulness. But the nation of Israel has not listened to God's voice. And on this very sad footout note, the confession section of Daniel's prayer comes to an end. Just to emphasize as we end this section on uh, Daniel's prayer of confession, 
we see here that Daniel includes himself when he confesses the sin of Israel. Now, Daniel grieves and mourns over Israel's sin, but also note that he does not push blame on those people. The pronouns he used in the prayers are predominantly first-person plural. He includes himself in the petition. He uses words like we, our, us. Daniel includes himself in Israel's guilt. You know, in our practice of confession, we should not think that we confess our sins for others. No, God forgive this guy, that guy. We need to know that we are just as guilty. And we too should be included in our prayer of confession to God. And in our practice of confession, we should include both individual and corporate confessions. Secondly, in verse 13, uh, Daniel tells us, Yet we have not entreated the favour of the Lord our God. Daniel has been really honest with his and the nation's sin, and therefore the just consequence they face. And yet Israel has not turned from their sins and sought God. Here we meet the nagging matter that so distresses Daniel. And also the, the, the thing that we see repeated again and again in the Old Testament. Israel has a history of rebellion and idolatry. They have suffered God's judgment for it. But it has not driven them to godly grief and genuine repentance. It seems that what concerned Daniel is not so much the return to the land. Because what good would it be to, do, to have people back in the land but still no sense of their sin and no exercise in repentance? You know, people who have not been crushed in spirit over the idolatry. My friend, but this is not Israel's tendency alone. Humanity in general, we are adverse in admitting our sin and guilt. Isn't this our experience as well? No, for those of us who have been sharing the gospel with our friends, we have stories when we share the gospel and when we address sin uh, and we tell our friends how we need to pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, some of our friends will immediately uh, jump in and argue, no, but that doesn't apply to me, I'm not a sinner. And sometimes when we ourselves are confronted with our sin, our inner lawyer kicks in and, and we say, yeah, we're not that bad, we're not really that bad a sinner as well. But let Daniel's prayer teach you and me. We should know better. One of the primary marks of a Christian is that we continually mourn over our sins. As one pastor puts it so well, what distinguishes us Christians from the world is not that we are less wicked, but that by the grace of God, we learn to see our wickedness for what it is and that we confess our sins. The church is the only body on earth that confesses sin. When confession of sin dies out, the church is no longer church. The Bible is clear. Loading over sin is a mark or evidence of having a new heart and a new spirit. A new spirit that comes about when we trust in Jesus Christ and the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, comes to indwell us and change us, producing new life. A new spirit will produce a new sadness that mourns and agonizes over sin, bringing about what the Puritans would call perpetual brokenheartedness. So Daniel's concern seems to be that there's precious little of this 
sadness and mourning among Israel in his own time. They've gone through all this disaster and are without a home, without a temple, without freedom, but sadly, also without repentance. Perhaps this, that's why Daniel wrote out this prayer. Perhaps this model prayer was written to drive the nation of Israel and drive us to true repentance. So my friends, how have we been confessing our sins to God? So, so what is confession? Confession of sin, as we see here, is acknowledging our sin to God. It's agreeing with God's assessment that we have wronged and offended God in our affections, in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. And this is modeled by Daniel. In our prayers of confession, we pray according to who God is, a God of mercy and justice. We plead mercy, and we'll talk a little bit more in the last section uh, today. But we also acknowledge God's justice. In short, we repent. And confession occurs not only at the start of the Christian life as we repent of our sins and turn to place our faith in Jesus Christ. Confession is also an ongoing practice throughout our Christian lives. And because confession is this ongoing practice, it should be an essential part of our prayers, not only individual prayers, but prayers together as a church. The practice of confession cultivates our awareness of our wrongs and strengthens our fight against sin. It promotes humility. And it strengthens our relationship with Father God as it allows us to receive His mercy and experience fellowship with God. So how have we been practicing confession? Individually, have we incorporated confessions into our prayer lives? Or our prayer lives are marked by just give me this, give me that. Have we confessed our sins before God? In, in what ways have we confessed our sin before our holy God? As a church, we have prepared a prayer booklet to help us through the month of January. And, and this is available on our website. And there's a section in there that covers confession. And you can use that for both your family and private prayers. How have we been practicing confession as a body of Christ, as a corporate body? Over the next few months, uh, we will incorporate confession into our worship service. So do participate in corporate confession because we see that this is modeled for us in Scripture. <clears throat> Lastly, practice praying prayer of confession in your small groups, thereby fulfilling James 5.16 where James tells us to confess your sins to one another. And I'm careful here, when I talk about this, I'm not talking about morbid self-disclosure, where we reveal every gross details of our sins as a sort of catharsis, meaning that you know, we confess everything, we say everything, and after that we feel good. You know, the, the purpose is not to really repentance, but making us feel good at the end. So I'm not talking about this kind of, uh, of confession. I'm talking about wise confession, discerning confession, uh, confessing your sin, true repentance, which will enable others to pray for you, for God's mercy for you. We go on to the last section where, where Daniel demonstrates for us how we plead for God's mercy. You know, when we make decisions on which, uh, on which financial institutions to bank with, we often make our choices based on their reputation and name, right? Now, we do not trust a bank if its name is associated with 
past scandals and, and defaults on financial transactions. The name of the bank is important. Likewise, God's name and reputation are important to God. In fact, we see Daniel appealing to God's reputation and name in the following verses, in verses 15 to 19. And we see at this point here, that and now in verse 15 and as well as verse 17, it signals that Daniel is now about to make his request, about to make his petition after confessing his and the nation of Israel's sin. And we see that the bulk of this prayer uh, that Daniel had just prayed before is co- concerned with lamenting sin. Now Daniel expresses his petition. We see that Daniel's primary request comes in verse 16. O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath turn away from a city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. This is a plea for mercy. This is a plea for restoration. And what is the basis for Daniel's petition? You know, we catch hints of these when Daniel alludes to how the Lord has made himself a name by the Exodus uh, deliverance in verse 15. And when he speaks of Israel as now being a cause for ridicule in verse 16. We note how Daniel pleads heaven with appeals to God's name and honour as he mentions. Next slide, please. Your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, your people have become a byword among those around us. Make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate, the city which is called by your name. Do not delay for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. We see here the emphasis of... uh, uh, God's name and reputation. And, and to be sure, we plead God to forgive because of God's name, but also because of God's mercy. We see in verse 18, For we do not please, present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Or as the New Living Translation puts it, we make this plea not because we deserve help, but because of your mercy. Do you get this? It's not because we are inherently deserving of receiving forgiveness, but God forgives because of His mercy. And, and this is the assurance for us. You know, believers, we can be sure of God's forgiveness, not because we deserve it, not because we merit it, but simply because of God's mercy. And my non-Christian friends, this is also the, your assurance you know, you do not have to be good to receive Christ. Instead, all you have to do is acknowledge your sin and rebellion. You trust that Christ died on the cross for forgiveness of your sins and was raised to life so that you may have life. And then you cry out like Daniel, confessing your sins and pleading God's mercy. You don't have to be good. You don't have to do something to deserve uh, Christ. You just simply have to acknowledge that you're a sinner and call out to Christ for help. If this is your desire and you're here right now, physically in person, you can speak to your Christian friend who has brought you here. Or if you're visiting with us online and you're sitting together with your friend as you view this sermon, speak to your friend about how you too can experience God's mercy and forgiveness. Or you can also email any of the pastors, our email contacts on the church website. But we notice something else. In, Daniel's, uh, in the last four or five verses of Daniel's prayer, that even beyond God's great mercy, which we see in verse 18, 
Daniel's, as I mentioned before, appeal to God's name and reputation. You know, of course, somehow, you know, the view of the people around David, uh, over that, over, uh, uh, of course, around the, the view of the people around Daniel's time is that God ruined his reputation when he gave up Judah's king and the temple worship vessels into Nebuchadnezzar's control. It was part of his judgment on Judah. But as of being so often, the perception of the crowds of Daniel's time did not get it right. The popular interpretation was that God was simply just a little league deity among the many deities in the Asian Near East, unable to keep his people from being conquered by the mighty Babylonians and the Babylonian gods. But Daniel pleads then to God to reverse all this and to restore his reputation and name. Genuine believers always have this concern close to their hearts, a concern for God's name and reputation. Daniel teaches us that God's reputation should be the driving concern of our prayers. Our petitions should be sprinkled with the pleading for His honour. And how would this practically look like? It will look like prayers like this. God, what honour it will bring you if this son of mine is converted? Or, or God, what praise will come to Christ if this marriage is restored and renewed? Or what, what credit will come to Christ's name if the suffering saint can walk through this hard trouble, growing more robust and sweeter in his or her faith? This is what it means to pray, a pleading to God's name, honour and reputation. There, there is, and we note that there's this pleading, desperate tone at the end of Daniel's prayer. You know, it, it almost reaches this intense pitch. And Daniel seems to be reduced to short, staccato-like begging notes. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay. And why? All for God's own sake. For the sake of His name. I gave this quote by pastor and theologian Ian uh, Duggett and uh, he concludes in his commentary on these verses in Daniel 9 with, with the following quote. These are the prayers that God delights. Next slide, please. These are the prayers that God delights to answer because we are praying on the basis of what He Himself promised. We may see these prayers answered in part in the present as God continues to sanctify us and His people around us. Yet we must also expect to keep praying such prayers until God's final answer to our sin, which will not be delivered until the Lord Jesus returns. On that day, all our praying will be done, for faith will be replaced by sight, and our aspiration for holiness will find its fulfillment. But most wonderfully, as we see in the book of Daniel, this sure hope of this coming ruler, uh, the day when Jesus Christ returned, this coming ruler, anointed one, a prince, we see this in Daniel 9, who will put all injustice and wickedness to flight, who will restore the world and the people of God. He has come to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity and to bring an everlasting righteousness. We see this in Daniel 9 as well. This, this Messiah, this anointed one will be like the Son of Man and will be given all glory so that all peoples, nations and languages should serve Him. We see this in Daniel 7. 
my friends, in Christ, this anointed prince has come. He has come once to inaugurate his rule some 2,000 years ago, but one day he will come again to bring it to his final righteous completion so that we as elect exiles will be brought into our promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, spending eternity with our ruler, Jesus Christ. This is one promise we can be sure and certain of. Let us pray. Father God, we are sinful and have turned away from you. Our sins, they are indeed many, but your mercy is more. Because of your steadfast love and mercy, and because of your namesake, forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and bring us this hope and restoration so that we too can testify to the name of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.